The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. the message the Lord has given me tonight to share with you. It's entitled, One Mind. Oh Lord, you gave me this word and you said that I must give it. And so I now offer myself and I offer this word to be on the altar of burnt offering as a living sacrifice. And I ask, Lord, that you'll move amongst us with freedom, giving us tender and open hearts to hear what you would say to us. Thank you, Jesus. I pray in your holy name. Amen. Now, before I share this word tonight, 
I need to share some background about myself that you may not be aware of. When I was in seminary, I began intense training in small group leadership. I was exposed to what was then called T-groups. And I began, even while I was in seminary, leading these T-groups because I had a natural affinity to this process, to this psychological process. I have since spent many thousands of dollars going through seminars and workshops to get certification as a small group leader, as a master trainer, dealing with conflict resolution and dealing with various processes for building a social organization. And for many years as a pastor, I worked very diligently at this process. Now, part of what I'm going to share with you comes out of just basic church growth in our culture today and the psychological understandings that have been brought to it. When you gather a group of people together, the first question that is always raised, can I be a part of this group? Is there room for me in this group? And where do I fit in in this group? Where will my place be in the pecking order in this group? And then the philosophy goes that a pastor needs to allow and create opportunity for conflict between people within the congregation, but to do it in such a way that it can be managed so that it's not destructive. And so you hold meetings of various kinds, committee meetings. You let people have access to each other, and you you allow conflict to emerge because if conflict can come and they can get it out of their systems and they can come to an, an agreement about how they're going to work with each other, then you'll have peace in the church. And they say, if you don't do this, you will have what they call street fights where conflict will pop up anyway, because regardless of what you do, so goes the teaching, you will have conflict in any social organization. And so you can either manage the social conflict and try to point it toward a productive direction, or you're going to have the conflict and it will be explosive and destructive. And of course, any of you who've been in church very long know that there's a a level, it's a 200-member barrier. You can be a unified family until you reach about 200 people, and then you're going to have social explosions. People are going to get mad, and a piece of the church will tear off. And we've experienced that in this fellowship, where suddenly somebody gets mad at somebody in the church, and they blast them. And then they try to get the pastor to agree with them about how bad this person is. And then if that doesn't work, somebody gets in a huff and they leave and they say, I'm never coming back. And then, of course, when they leave to protect yourself in the church, you have to demonize the person who got mad and say how bad they are and how good we are so that we're all safe and secure in our little social group and feel comfortable about being here even though somebody's gone. Well, this this is all just social process that is in the textbooks. You can go look it up and read it. I'm not talking about anything that isn't widely recognized in social dynamics. Many of you have been exposed to these principles. Rogerian group process is a very common process today. I was trained specifically in Rogerian therapy and in reality therapy. And so, now I come as a pastor, as every pastor does, and and says, okay, what tools do I have in my tool bag to maintain peace and decorum within the body of Christ so that it's safe for everybody and nobody gets mad and goes away? And I have steadfastly refused to use any of those tools. I will not use a psychological overlay on the body of Christ to somehow try to manage a church so that it will be fast-growing and positive and everybody knows their place and everybody understands 
when they're going to get nipped and when they're not going to get nipped. And I'm not going to do that. My model is much closer to that of St. Francis of Assisi, who when all the new, young, hot-blooded men began to flood into his organization and they began to demand radical changes, he simply said, I need to have some time to pray. And so he went off to a cave for that winter and spent the entire winter in the cave praying. And when he came back some six months later, he discovered that the hotheads were gone and everyone was welcoming him back and saying, let's follow Jesus. Well, that's a pretty risky way to manage a church. But now let's be very specific about some issues. I remember the first elders meeting at the National Prayer Chapel. And of course, I had everybody seated comfortably in a nice circle. That's socially acceptable. And I asked the question, what would you like to share today? And elder after elder, as we went around the circle, many of them had something very negative to share. I don't like the way the music is going, and I don't like the way the children's department is going, and I don't like this, and I don't like that. Well, I said, there's an easy solution to that. We just won't have any more elders meetings because we're not safe to meet with each other. We're not safe. And all but four of those elders left the church because if they weren't going to have a position and if they weren't going to have power, they were going to leave. Now I'm dealing with the issue of having a leadership meeting. As I've been praying about that, I've been constantly delayed by the Lord in having that leadership meeting. You know why? We're not safe yet. We're not safe. We could have a leadership meeting, and out of that leadership meeting, we're going to have some intense conflict emerge. Contention, bitterness, breaking, or I could step in and manage the conflict and help, okay, you compromise a little this way and you compromise a little this way. Let's make room for everybody here at the table. Do you realize what the National Prayer Chapel is really about? It's not about programs. It's not about growing. It's not about looking good. It's about repentance. It's about repentance. It's about getting right so that the power of God can flow through us to accomplish in this city what he wants to accomplish. And so the Lord has directed us to keep it real simple. When we have a leadership meeting, you know what we're going to have a leadership meeting to do? Pray. Pray. Because this thing is not going to be accomplished by skill of human heart or hand. It's going to be accomplished by the power of the Spirit. You see, I've seen and you've seen all the best organized groups come into this city. The Million Man March. I mean, I was there. I participated. And then I left. And basically, Washington was left as the same wicked city it was when everybody came to town. This wicked city is not going to be changed by wicked people. It's going to be changed by people who've submitted themselves to Jesus Christ and who have repented and who have dealt with the bitterness of their hearts and they're finished with it and it's over. But now I want to walk with you through the scriptures and I want to give you a breakdown word by word of what Jesus says he wants in order to move among us. Walk with me through the scriptures. Philippians, the second chapter. Philippians, the second chapter. Paul begins by saying, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ. In other words, if there's anything in your heart that finds encouragement because Jesus loves you. 
If when you read the scriptures, there's any comfort there for you, if there's any comfort in the love that Jesus Christ has shared for you, if there's any fellowship you have with the Spirit, if you have any anointing tonight at all in the Spirit of God, if there's any hunger in your heart after Jesus Christ, then listen to what Paul wants to say to you. Make my joy complete, verse 2, by being like-minded. By being like-minded. I was curious about this word, being like-minded in the Greek. What's it really saying? What is like-minded Well, literally, it is to regard or seek after the same thing for each other that you seek after for yourself. Do not have divided interests. Do not pursue different ends or goals. Do not indulge counter plans and purposes. Do not seek for yourself. So Paul is saying, if you have any love, if you have any sense that God cares for you, if you have any sense of his compassion for you, then please, I'm begging you, be like-minded. Be like-minded. Don't have anything in your heart when you come into this body. Don't have anything in your heart that you're trying to accomplish for you or for your family. Don't have any following. Don't come into this place and try to create for yourself what you want. Don't don't come and say, okay, pastor, if you'll do this and this, and if you'll say this, and if you'll provide this, then I'll be happy. No, you won't be happy here because I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to engage in those social practices that build worldly social organizations. Either Jesus has to be enough for us at the National Prayer Chapel, or we're not going to be happy here. If you need a sense that you're accomplishing something, you're in the wrong house. You see, we didn't come to this house to accomplish something. We came to this house to repent. We came to humble our hearts. We came to say, Jesus, I give up being in charge. I give up being in control. I give up saying, I've got the answers. You, Jesus, are the answer. You're the truth. I'm not the truth. You're the truth. And to learn how to walk that out. Now, it says, having the same love. Having the same love. And the word for love, of course, which will not surprise you, is agape. Having the same self-sacrificing attitude. So when I come to my brother David, the Lord is saying, have an attitude toward David that says, David, how can I sacrifice myself for you? Not having anything of my own going. Not saying, how can can I get David on my side? Not saying, how can I use David? What can I get from him? No, it's, David, how can I serve you? How can I serve you? Now, it's easy for me to say that with David because he's such a lovable guy. But what about somebody I might not like who said something to me that upset me? The Lord is saying through Paul, go to that person and sacrifice yourself for them. Go to them and sacrifice yourself for them. Some of you, your husband, your wife, 
if your husband would just do this, if he would just behave, if he would just do what you ask him to do. The Lord is saying, will you sacrifice yourself for your husband? And some of you husbands, you're saying, if my wife would just clean the house up, my wife would just be the homemaker I want her to be. He's saying, would you go sacrifice yourself for your wife? Will you sacrifice yourself for your wife? That's what he's saying. Like-minded, having no personal agenda, having the same love, that is, having self-sacrificing love one for another, And then it says, being one in spirit and purpose. I said, wait a minute. What's that mean? The implication is a bit terrifying to me. I have a hard enough time being one spirit with my wife. That's got my plate full. He's saying, be one spirit with everybody in the church. I'm saying, how's that work? So I looked it up in the Greek. I want to share with you what I found. Being in one spirit, or as the King James Version says, of one accord. The word used is only used one time in the entire New Testament. And it's used here. It means of one soul, having your soul joined together, acting in a way as though there were one soul moving them. So the picture that Paul is painting for us is a people who are all different Parts of the body, but they are moved as by one soul. Now, this is getting real close to me because, thank you very much, I'd like to keep my soul, my identity, my ways, my thoughts. I mean, put me in a committee meeting and I can tell you the right way to do it. I remember one night I was called to a meeting. It was a kind of a social meeting. It was with a wonderful church. The pastor was a layman. And they began asking me questions about small group process. And I was a pro there. So I began to outline the steps for developing mission groups within a church. A mission group church basically is modeled after Church of the Savior downtown, Gordon Cosby. It's a very large congregation, probably 30,000 people involved in this church. And to be a member, everybody has to be a part of a small group. And each small group has a mission in the city, feeding the poor, whatever it is. And at that point in my life, I was at a point where I was absolutely and utterly committed to the idea that for a church to really be a church, you had to be in a small group. So they were quizzing me rather carefully on this, and I was saying, yes, I I believe firmly that you need to be in a small group to grow as a Christian. They asked me the question, well, pastor, would you, in a church that you were pastoring, is that something you would insist on? Absolutely. Well, we had a pleasant evening together, and when the evening was over, I was friends with many of the people who were present. I discovered what that meeting had been about. They were deciding that night if they were going to invite me to come and be their pastor. And I was very offended when this 600-member congregation did not get the approval of that committee to vote me in as their pastor. I've since praised God that that happened. I went there with all the answers. 
And they said, we don't want a man who has all the answers. We want a man who knows Jesus. That was one of the most painful lessons of my past. It wasn't until much later, when I was pastor of the National Prayer Chapel, that I began to go back to that very painful time and review, Lord, what were you saying to me? Why did that happen? And the Lord said to me, I'll be the answer. I don't expect you to have the answers. And your answers aren't going to work anyway. Now you understand, if we're going to have a battle here, and I'm the senior pastor, then you ought to function according to my soul. And then if you'll function according to my soul, then you can have a bit of the power too. And then you'll have people who will work according to your soul. No, what Paul is saying is that there's only one soul that's going to function here, and that's Jesus. And we're going to move in concert with the soul of Jesus Christ. Now, I can tell you tonight, if we were to call a meeting of leadership council in this church, we are not yet ready to move at the soul of Jesus Christ. We'd want our own soul in there. And I'm waiting until Jesus gives me permission to call a leadership meeting in this church. And I won't call one until he tells me it's safe. Understand what's at stake here. The body of Christ. It's not about getting our way. It's not having the organization our way. It's not having the, the worship service go our way. It's not having the music go our way. I mean, have you ever watched the music team as they stand up here in front? Have you watched how Deborah leads? And then Deborah will pull back and she'll let Kevin lead in the worship without an attitude. And when Kevin's finished with his worship and he leads us all, then Kevin will settle back and our designated leader will step up with the next song. Do you know the kind of conflict could be involved in this? Where Deborah comes to our brother after the service and says, look, I'm the leader of this music group. Now you get in line. I'm tired of this business. Now Deborah would never do that. Because Deborah's not leading this music out of her soul. She's leading it out of the soul of Jesus Christ. And Kevin is not worshiping out of his soul. Kevin is worshiping out of the soul of Jesus. And when Jesus is leading, leadership is no longer a position. It's a function. And that function switches one to another, depending on which arm or which leg or which hand Jesus wants to use next to accomplish his purpose in the body. But you see, if I as pastor am standing back and I'm saying, look, I want this music to operate this way. Now, Deborah, you've got to go to Kevin and tell him to just shut it down. Huh? Or if I go to Deborah and say, Deborah, look, this is, this is what I want you to do with this music. I don't want any more praying up here. I'll do the praying in this church. You know, I want you just to step in and, and sing. Make it roll like a drum. What's going to happen in our body? Deborah's going to say, it's pastor's soul that's running this church. It's not the Holy Spirit. It's not Jesus' soul that's running this church. I'm not going to do it anymore. Because I can't do it if it's not Jesus' soul. 
Because I know her heart. She only wants to do what Jesus wants her to do. Do you follow what I'm saying to you tonight? As we flow together as one soul out of Jesus, we can trust what he will do with the body. See, I don't need to use my social engineering skills to build the body of Christ. I just need to keep my hands off it and let Jesus build it. The scripture says that if the Lord does not build the house, the workers work in vain. I just talked with a dear brother who whose church just went out and borrowed $14.9 million to build their new building. And I said to him, why, why did they do that? And he said, because they want to touch this city for Jesus. But they're doing it through their human flesh. Now, we can do the same thing. Do you know how easy it is to slip from following Jesus to following a man? And how easy it is to slip over and begin to say, okay, we've got to whip this thing into shape. We've got to make it work the way it's supposed to work. Let's get this thing shaped up. Wait a minute. Is this Jesus' church? This is his body. And so when we come into this house, I expect to see the elders stepping forward in prayer. I expect to see the elders ministering in the name of Jesus to this fellowship. I expect the Sunday school teachers to be ministering in the name of Jesus, out of the spirit of Jesus, out of the soul of Jesus to our children. Are we going to have to listen carefully to him? Yes. Are we going to make mistakes? Yes. Are we going to repent? Yes. And get back on track? I expect each of you who comes to this fellowship to come ready fervently to enter into the prayer. I expect you to come with hearts eager, self-sacrificing hearts, ready to come and put yourself beneath your brother and sister as a servant to your brother and sister without any arrogance or any haughtiness or any hardness of heart, without any anger, bitterness of spirit, to come and be of one accord with no private agendas, coming with a heart full of praise and gratitude that Jesus Christ is moving among us. He goes on, in case you've missed it, verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. I said, Lord, what is, what is selfish ambition? So I went back to the Greek. It literally means do nothing out of contention. Contention is not the principle by which we are to act or by which we are to be governed. We are, we are to form no plan we are to have no aim. We are to have no objective which is secured by contention. Now, let's cut it real straight. If in your relationship with another person, a spirit of contention rises up in your heart, you know immediately you are walking in the presence and in the power of a spirit of darkness. We have not been called to be contentious. We have not been called to be argumentative. At work, 
especially. In our families, if I get into a spirit of contention with my wife, I know immediately I'm walking in a spirit of darkness. The will of God is never accomplished by a spirit of contention. I must have my way. I must have what I need. You're not taking care of me. I have to take care of myself. If you're going to act that way, I'm just going to go away. I'm out of here. All kinds of contentious punishment and seeking after power have to be utterly cut off from our hearts. The Holy Spirit will not come into a house where there is a spirit of contention. Our children have to be taught not to contend with mom and dad. Mom and dad have to be taught not to contend with their little ones. Instead, everything is brought back to the base. What does the scripture say? What is the way of the cross? How are we called to function as Christ's disciples? Under discipline. And so if in your heart rises up contention, know that you're walking in a spirit of darkness. And some of you say, well, then how do we deal with evil? You put on all of the weapons of warfare. Prayer, reading of the word, truth. You notice what it says? Your feet are to be shod with what? The preparation of the gospel of peace, not contention. Oh, Jesus. See, we want to put on the weapons, and then we want to wear the shoes of battle of contention. And Jesus is saying, no, put on shoes of peace so that everywhere you walk, there will be peace. So I ask you now, who have you been in contention with this week? And know that as you were walking in contention, you were walking in a spirit of rebellion and darkness, that the presence of God wasn't with you. And you were grieving the Spirit of God from your heart. This is serious. You see, what happens with me, I don't get angry easily anymore. There was a day when my temper was a flash. It's not anymore. By the grace of God, it's not what I've done. It's what Jesus has done. But you see, what happens now is that little things will add up. Little things will add up. Little things will add up. And then finally, it takes one straw laid on the camel's back. And there's an atomic explosion. I don't care who's around. I've had it. Level the playing field. I'm mowing grass. And the Lord is saying, that's of darkness. Do you know what it says? It shows my heart that I don't believe that Jesus has the kingdom and the power and authority. That I have to get the kingdom and I have to get the power and I have to get the authority because I'm going to set things right. What the Lord is saying to me, go to your prayer closet. Say to me whatever you need to say to Jan. Say to me whatever you need to say to your brother. Don't say it to your brother. Say it to me. And together we'll judge what you have spoken. So you go into your prayer closet and you begin to pour out your heart to God about how this person just makes you so mad. And as you work that through with Jesus, he begins to judge that thing in your heart. Now I'm going to confess something. He has never once judged it in my favor. (laughs) Now it seems like he ought to judge it at least once in my favor. 
because I'm the one being honest with that. After all, I'm the one. I'm the one in the prayer closet. You know, I'm the one being honest with him. Do you know what he said to James and John? They were saying those wretched Samaritans over there. They're not accepting you, Jesus, for who you are. Can I call fire down from heaven on them? He says, you sons of thunder, you have no part with me. You have no part with me. Jesus didn't want them to call down fire and consume, you know, but didn't didn't Elijah do that? But I want to tell you the difference. Elijah did it for the glory of God, not for his glory. And that's what God always judges me on. Ray, are you so angry for me? Or are you so angry for yourself? Remember Moses? Do I have to strike this rock, you wretched people? You rebels. You rebels. Boom, he hits the rock. And God says, because you would not consider me holy, you would not trust me enough to be holy, you can't go in. This spirit of contention that rises up. Now, you can sit here. And you can all smile at me and you're wonderful people. But let's call a committee together and let's talk about something that's dear on your heart. Now, are you going to have a spirit of self-sacrifice? Are you going to have a spirit of putting others before you? Are you going to say, you know what? I'll sacrifice myself for your idea. Are you kidding? I know. I've got experience. I have wisdom. You better listen to me. You know, if you want to get it right, do it my way. Do you understand what I'm saying to your heart tonight? It's interesting. We can have a social gathering, have some food together, and then listen to the conversations. Listen to this next step, and then you'll understand what I'm saying. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. In other words, don't do anything that begins to lift yourself up and give you a position of recognition. One of the things I pride myself on is being quick with the retort. And I hope I can always do it in a humorous manner. But often there's an edge, a knife, a dry edge of knife accompanying that quick jab back. We used to call it as kids slamming. We worked it out to an art form. Who's going to have the last word? You know, whoever has the last word wins the argument. You know that. Do you have to have the last word? Mom or dad says something. Emmanuel, what do you say? Mom or dad says something, and Amy, what do you say? The last retort. Vain conceit that says, I want to present myself in such a light that you will know how ignorant you are and how wise I am. And then, of course, I'm going to say, but I was just kidding. I'm just fooling around. I'm just having some fun. You know, don't take it personal. You took it personal, I'm sorry. Don't take me personal. It was very personal. It was the law of the jungle that was going on. Who's going to be the greatest among us? Who's going to have the position of power and prestige? 
Who's going to be recognized as being something? So you get up in the morning. How do you decide what you're going to wear? Are you going to wear something to make a statement that day at work? What statement do you want to make? Is your statement, Jesus is Lord? Or is your statement, hey, look at me, I'm hot here. I'm somebody. You better watch how you deal with me because I'm the man. Or I'm the woman. So off you go to school, right kids? And you got to have the right designer clothes. Got to have the right tennies. Got to have the right jacket. Why? So you'll be cool. Other kids will look at you and say, hey, you've got money. They're together. Better treat them special. And then you've got to have the right electronic equipment. You've got to have the right cell phone. Got to have the right little player for the music. Mom and dad got to have the right car, the right hairdo, the right address. Do you know how vexing to my soul it was to say I live with Tim and Liz Rohde? Five years of not having a home, having our grandson live with us most of that time, sleeping on the floor beside us on the carpet. And then Tim stood up in front of all of his staff and he said, I want to introduce you to my pastors, Ray and Jan Greenley. They were my housemates for five years. And he was proud of it. Thank you, Jesus. And I said, Jesus, I've been so ashamed of it. Because living with Tim and Liz said, I couldn't provide for my family. Do you understand what I'm talking about tonight? Jesus is saying, he doesn't want any more vain glory. He doesn't want any more building up of our sense of self-esteem, empty pride, by posturing ourselves in a way that says, I'm somebody, you better deal with me. Have you ever seen a blowfish? Yes. See some danger and it puffs itself all up and sticks its spine out. I mean, they're not worth a nickel to eat. There's no flesh on them. They're just all bones. But, oh, man, they want to blow themselves up, and they want to look like something to be feared. I mean, they're the shark of the ocean. They're just a blowfish. <laughs> Any of you been blowfish this week? <laughs> I tell you, I, I'm first cousin to blowfish. Jesus is saying, don't pump yourself up. Don't pretend to be somebody important. Don't, don't act like you're the man or the woman or the guy or the gal. Don't walk that way. He's saying, if your relationship to Jesus means anything to you, don't, don't walk in that foolishness anymore. Lay it aside. Don't pretend to be somebody anymore. The only one you might fool is yourself. Now, listen to what he says. Each of you should not look after only your own interests, but also the interests of others. In other words, as you're walking in Jesus in the body of Christ, you want to keep one eye out constantly for that person who's falling behind. You want to keep an eye out for that person who looks troubled. You want to keep an eye out so you can step forward and put your arm around him and say, hey, what's going on? But in order for you to be able to step in beside a person, they've got to know that you're not there for vain glory. Oh, yes, Jesus. 
They've got to know you're not there to play games. You're going straight ahead. Jesus' soul is flowing in your body. It's not the soul of flesh anymore. It's the soul of Jesus himself. And that soul is flowing in your heart. And because of that, you're coming up close to them and saying, Oh, are you all right? What can I help you with? That self-sacrificial love begins to pour out for others. And this stuff has to happen in home or it'll never happen in church. Spirit of judgment has to be cut off between husbands and wives, between fathers and sons, between daughters and moms. Spirit of judgment has to be cut off. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Now listen to what Jesus' attitude was. Who being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped after. In other words, Jesus is God. And he said, I don't need to be God anymore. None of us are God. But all of us think we have to grasp for being God. And Jesus is saying, if you've seen anything about my life that has touched you with love or encouragement or compassion, give up trying to be God. Lay it down. He made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, a do-loss slave. Being made in human likeness. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. And became obedient to death, even death on a cross. This is the worst possible shame a man could be given. Stripped of his clothing, hung up on a cross in incredible pain and suffering for the whole world to watch with no dignity. That's where he ended up. And he's saying to each of us, lay down your pride. Thank you so much for joining us today. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress, brought to you by the National Prayer Chapel in Woodbridge, Virginia. Write to us at the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia 22195, or visit us online at nationalprayerchapel.com. God bless you. We love you.